Welcome to the Runners Connect, Run to the Top podcast, where it's all about learning from the best minds in the sport so you can train smarter, stay healthy, and run faster now. And now your host, Lucas Felton. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Runners Connect, Run to the Top podcasts. Have you ever wondered why you can't string together good race finishes? It's usually not as bad as every other race, but in a given racing season, to go more than three or four races in a row without something bad going on is much more often the result of luck than anything else. Consistency, or lack of it, is one of the most frustrating and elusive parts of running and competing. Many things can get in the way of good running, family and work being chief among them. John Sinclair recorded more wins and top finishes than any other runner in history in his 15 years as a professional runner, and is often remembered simply more for that consistency than for any other particular race result. We sat down with John to find out how he did it. Marty LaCorey might have summed it up best. You've got to be a little bored to be doing really good training. A few of the topics that John and I discussed included John's career and some of the race events that defined it, the importance of maintaining one's aerobic fitness, keeping consistency in all aspects of training in life, and John's coaching in the book that he co-wrote with his partner, Kent Oglesby. We'd like to thank John for being so giving of his time and experience and wishing the best in his coaching and in all aspects of life. All resources mentioned in this podcast can be found at runnersconnect.net slash runninginterviews slash John Sinclair. I'm your host, Lucas Felton, and thanks for listening. So, John, it's great to have you on the show today. Tell us, um, tell us a bit about your background first. How did you get started running? Where are you from, etc.? My parents were original. Well, my dad originally was a lawyer in D.C. for the federal government, retired, and then moved to, to Colorado when I was ten. And um, I was always small for my my class. I was always kind of on the the wimpy side, uh, so I wasn't really big enough to do well in football or basketball or that kind of thing. And so running was kind of the last thing I came to. Um, and I started running when I was 14 years old. And I instantly had success at it because of the genetics, obviously. And, you know, for me, that was something like, you know, almost a miracle. I mean, it just, like, because I had not been good at anything athletically before. And so all of a sudden, bang, I was the best person in the county, in the district. No one could beat me. Um, so that was ninth grade, 10th grade, 11th grade, 12th grade. I kept progressing and I had excellent coaching in high school, really, really good coaching, um, which emphasized strength work and aerobic development. And, um, by the time I graduated from high school, I was the best distance runner in the state of Colorado, got a scholarship to Colorado State University, um, and continued to develop there, uh, did pretty well as an NCAA athlete and, um, when I graduated from CSU, I started running professionally. And so your professional career, for those that don't know, spanned at least, is it 15 years? Yeah, it sort of depends on how you define it, but I, I would say 15 years, yeah. And throughout that time, you had an incredible record of high finishes and wins in different road races and, well, all kinds of races all over the country and the world. How how are you able to be so consistent in your racing and your finishes? Um, you know, that's been asked of me a lot because clearly that was a defining characteristic of my career. Um, I ended up with a couple of American records, uh, but time for me was never as important or finish times, uh, records and, and such were never really that big of a deal to me. But placing and winning always was. I was motivated by the money, certainly, but I just loved to compete and I loved to road race. 
My response to, to that question has always been, that first and foremost, I love to run. I, I love the physical part of it. Um, it was always easy for me in those terms. I didn't get injured often. Uh, my mechanics must have been pretty good because I only really had one injury in that whole 15 years that was, I'd say, significant. So I was able to stay healthy. I, I love to run and I love to race, and that's what kept me going out the door every day. Um, and I think that's what made me consistent. I, on a, on another level, though, I had excellent coaching, really, really good coaching. Um, I had a really very good agent who managed the um, the business side of it for me. So uh, that always very important. And I think also my lifestyle was very consistent. From year to year, I ran a lot of the same races. Um, I did a lot of the same kind of training. I trained in the same location. I had similar coaching all the way through my career. Um, so that consistency at the lifestyle level and at the competitive level allowed me to, to stay healthy and, and keep racing. And, and uh, I think that was the foundation of the success that I had. And what was the most important part, do you think, of your training to your consistency and your, and your race results? That's a good question. Um, I, I think from year to year, I did a lot of the same training. I ran on the same courses, ran, did same similar workouts. Um, I ran on the same tracks, ran similar workouts on hills, uh, which was a real foundational type of workout for me. Can you go into a little bit of specifics? Um, there's a, a reservoir just west of Fort Collins that almost everybody in the front range knows about. It's called Horsetooth Reservoir. There were some very lush hills there. Those hills were 600 to 800 meters long and really steep, like 7 8% kind of grade. I did that workout as a kind of a fartlek thing a lot, especially in my aerobic conditioning phase. Um, that was almost a weekly workout. On the other side of the reservoir, there's some really long trails, kind of um, long gradual uphills and long gradual downhills. I did a lot of training up on uh, in that area, um, which is Maury State Park and Horsey Fountain Park. So that made a big difference. And again, that was sort of aerobic conditioning. And when I really wanted to do specific, really hard, focused race-like training, I went to a canyon called Wrist Canyon, and that became a real key workout for me. It was a really long eight and a half mile uphill, which I divided into three sections and with a half mile between each of the three. Um, and so I did it as a really long, hard tempo, sustained, really tough uphill. Each of those sections got progressively shorter. So the first one was like three and a half miles long. The second one was about two miles long. And the third one was about a mile and a half long. Each section got higher. It ended up at about 7,500 feet in elevation. So there was an altitude element to it. And it got progressively steeper. Each section was shorter, but a whole lot steeper. So it was a huge strength and sustained effort kind of thing. And um, it became very, very much a component of, especially the later years of my training. So it sounds like aerobic strength, definitely the theme here. And I think the kind of racing that I was really good at was the hilly kind of 10-mile um, tough kind of racing, and I think that's why. I mean, I was good at that, and, and so I really accentuated that kind of training and chose those kind of races. That Risk Canyon workout, I had friends that did that with me, and 
um, you know, it was just a complete, utter crushing workout at the top of it. It was really difficult. It's a kind of, I used to say it's a, like the, the trout dying on a, on a, on a dock, you know, you're just gasping for breath. You just, you can't get in enough oxygen <laughs> at the top. Um, it was, it was a really, really tough workout. So there was a, a real strength element to it. There was a max VO2 element to it. There was an anaerobic resistance element to it. It was, it was very much a race simulation. Certainly sounds like it. And so with so many races on your calendar, like how did you have to, how did you plan your training to, to avoid burning out after, after a long season? I had um, specific rules about when I was racing and when I wouldn't race. I took really extended rests. So in the middle of the, of the year, in late summer, I'd stop racing uh, usually uh, in early July. There were years that I did dicks, um, which carried through the middle of, of July. But dicks was usually for me a, um, sort of like a, a fun trip, and uh, I raced well there, but it wasn't something that I would really key on. And in that time of the year, I was just doing general miles. And those general miles would continue through August and early September. And then I would start getting serious about racing again. And then I quit racing uh, in October, took a lot of November off where I would just do easy miles or you know take rest days, and then got serious about training again when I'd go to New Zealand in December or January and rebuild aerobically. So by not racing or... I guess the races that I did were very low-key races during those periods. It was kind of a, a, a refreshing kind of uh, vacation for me every year. So it wasn't like I was chasing really hard um, competitive races every month out of the year. I had those down times where I could just really relax and just enjoy my running. And, I, you know, again, I think the reason I was able to go so many years and I think I, that I was so effective at it is I just really enjoyed what I was doing. There were days when it was hard work, obviously. And there were days when I didn't want to go out the door when the weather was crappy and I just didn't want to train. But for the most part, you know, for me, it was it was a, a real joy to be able to do it every day. And I stayed motivated and I loved to race. So when I get into those race periods, that was never a problem for me. That was, you know, I enjoyed doing that and I was successful at it. And you mentioned going to New Zealand. For those that don't know, John was coached by a man named John Davies, who was an Olympic medalist in the 1960s trained directly under uh, famed coach Arthur Lydiard. Can you tell us about a little bit of John's influence on you? He was a huge influence. I like to say he was an athlete's coach. He understood athletes. I think he understood a lot of the pressures. He understood the joy of doing it. He wasn't just a technical coach. I think there are people out there who are very good technically and uh, understand the sport, understand the physiology, but John was understood athletes. Um, and fundamentally, he was an athlete's coach. And uh, there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about him or um, under, think about how he treated his athletes. And, and I try to do the same with the people I coach. He took it very seriously and knew it, was, it meant a lot to me. Um, but we just we had a good time together. When I go to New Zealand, you know, I'd see him several times a week. There were a couple summers when I actually was living with him and his, his wife. So I spent a lot of time with him and learned from him. Uh, I learned a lot about the sport and a lot about coaching from him. And uh, he was just an inspirational guy and a great, great person to be around. So, like I said, there's, there's not a day that doesn't go by that I don't think about him and think about his philosophy. John was a New Zealand athlete, and for all the years that, that uh, he competed, he was obviously training and racing in New Zealand. 
uh, and his coach, Arthur Lydiard, um, they would choose major races that he would go to. So almost all of the, the athletes from that time in New Zealand, that includes uh, Peter Snell and uh, Murray Halberg, uh, Bill Bailey, um, they didn't have really big races there. They actually brought people in to race in New Zealand, but the majority of the the racing that they did in those big meets, those races are all, most all of them were in Europe. So they had to travel. Their racing pattern actually was a series of short races that they would do in New Zealand that would be less important, that they would race amongst themselves. They'd get ready, and then they would go away for the big race. Uh, so it was very pointed on one or two major races. There were times when John would go away and he would do a whole lot of shorter races in, in North America indoors, for instance. You used to like to tell stories about Murray Halberg and him traveling around the U.S. and running indoor races. So that did happen, but mostly they were focused on doing these major races. And so when John approached training other athletes, he would develop uh, a program or wanted to develop a program that would point towards one specific race. And that was the lineage system, too, peaking towards that one specific or two specific races. Uh, and I think it rose out of that that New Zealand, that insular New Zealand environment where those guys would just race amongst themselves and then go away to the big race. When I first started working with Davies, we sat down and, and he looked at what I wanted to do and said, well, what's the one race that you want to really run well in? What's the Where are we going to focus on? What's the peak race that you want to do? And I'd say, well, you know, actually what I want is, you know, I want to run well here, I want to run here, run, run there. Um, and I need to do well in you know this six-week period or eight weeks because I was road racing. I did a lot of road racing. Not one of those events was enough by itself to support me through the year. I had to do well at numerous races. So for me, instead of a peak, it was more of a hump. I had to be <laughs> ready to run well over six to eight weeks instead of being able to run well over two or three weeks. And for John, that was kind of a change in philosophy. What he wanted was that one race that I could point at and we did have those um, we did have those training cycles where I was doing that, but for the most part, it was more of a hump than a, than a peak, and that was a change for him. And I, you know, I had to bring him around slowly to that kind of attitude. Um, and he was very good at producing that kind of fitness, but he was always quick to add, "Well, you have to understand, you know, you're not going to be real ready here. You're not going to be real ready there because we have to." extend that aerobic period. And now as a coach myself, I, I see what I was asking him to do, and he was very effective at doing it. I got real ready, and I was able to sustain that peak uh, a lot because I mean, he understood the importance of aerobic training and wasn't going to take that away. Um, and by kind of balancing that aerobic work and the racing and the anaerobic training, we were able to kind of sustain a long period of, of really good racing. I've said this over and over again to people that I race with, and it's really obvious that people race and train in the form of the kind of personality that they have. I happen to be sort of a really consistent, boring, kind of bland <laughs> personality, I guess. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, like, yeah, I don't like change. I, I like consistent day-to-day -day kind of similar circumstances. And that personality trait of mine played to my lifestyle and allowed me to train and uh, it, it just gave me sort of the situation that I needed to be consistent year after year. Um, I didn't like changing coaches. I didn't like changing locations. Um, I didn't like changing workouts a lot. Um, 
I had, like I said, I had the same agent. We signed a contract together in 1979, and I never signed another contract with him. That was always you know, a handshake kind of deal. But he was the same agent I had all through my career. Um, the same with coaching. You know, I, I started with John Davies in 1983, and he remained my coach all through my professional career pretty much, except for the first few years. So that consistency and that desire not to have change was certainly good for me. But then I could see other athletes around me at the same time who were changing things all the time. You know, they would be in one city for six months training, and then they would up and they would move to another place, and they would change coaches in the same way. It was like they were constantly looking for a better situation. Um, and I think that those people got lesser results. So... I think being bland and boring is maybe a good thing. <laughs> At least it was for me. Um, and I have to say, my wife, Kim Jones, who arguably is one of the best marathoners the country's ever produced, would say the same thing. I, you know, she's kind of the same kind of personality. She likes low-key lifestyle, likes similar situations all the time, doesn't want to change. Um, and maybe that's a, a shared personality trait with a lot of really successful runners. I don't know. Could very well be. So I want to shift gears a little bit. Um, your competitive record shows a lot of success over a whole lot of distances and, and, and different disciplines. So you had a couple, you had at least one national championship in cross country and a couple other high finishes, as well as a few very good track results. Do you think it's important to train and race on kind of all different types of surfaces? And if you say no. so, why? <laughs> I don't. I think, um, you know, my success in cross country uh, largely came early in my career. That was in the early 80s after I had left CSU. Um, I always loved cross country. I wasn't very good at it except in certain formats. Um, I need a whole lot of energy back out of the ground. I don't do really well with soft, nasty kind of surfaces, mud, heavy grass, that kind of stuff doesn't work well for me. So cross country in Europe was always a disappointment. I never did well there um, because that's the kind of racing they have. But in the United States on golf courses and harder ground, I always did really, really well. Um, but I could see how it wasn't going to work for me. I couldn't make money at it. Um, I couldn't continue my professional career if I just was to be a cross-country runner because I would never have done well in Europe. So early on, I moved out of cross-country. I did some track, um, but again, it always cost me money to do track. Um, if I'd go to a track race, I'd usually pay my own way there. I'd pay for the hotel. Um, I'd have to find my way to the track. Uh, you know, there was never really much prize money or bonus money for it. So, you know, it, the, the seasons that I spent doing that, and there were only a couple of them, I ended up losing a lot of money to do it. Uh, with a road race, people would pay my way there. They would give me money to show up. They would give me money at the finish line. There'd be a big party afterwards. And then they would take me to the airport and say, thank you for coming. So for me, it was a completely different experience, and I always liked road racing a whole lot more, and it meant more money. So I, I concentrated on doing those kind of workouts. Um, I focused on strength. I focused on doing a lot of training on roads. Uh, a lot of the harder stuff was on the track because I always enjoyed racing on the, and running on the track. But I think if you're going to train or if you're going to race uh, in a certain format, on a certain surface, that that's where the bulk of your running should be. If you're going to be a cross-country runner, then you need to practice running on grass. You need to be in the mud. You need to be in heavy grass, that kind of stuff, um, to produce the kind of fitness and the mental 
adjustment to the surface that you need to be successful there. So, you know, for me, it was always about being very specific to the racing that I was doing. While it might look like I was successful at those other things, during the periods that I was racing there in that in that format, then I was doing a whole lot of running on that kind of surface. But um, as a road racer, I worried about training on a lot of hills and um, making that kind of adaptation. How did you adjust your training for different uh, like different race distances? Because you've had wins at everything from 8K to half marathon and beyond. Um, that's a good question. Yeah, I was never really a very good marathoner because I don't think I was genetically gifted in that way. I mean, I can, I can definitely see the, a difference um, in gifts in, between me and, and Kim, my wife. Um, we can go for a long run, and she has no trouble at all, you know, reeling off two hours, uh, you know, but I'm dying for replacement fluid and, and falling apart towards the end. So, um, you know, there's, there's certainly a different genetic gift there, and I, I don't, I never really did have great speed, um, so I wasn't really good at the short end, but what I was really good at was the hilly 10-mile races, 20Ks, half marathons, that kind of stuff. Um, I always wanted to be a miler because I loved being on the track and racing at that distance, but I didn't have the genetic gifts to do it. What I was good at was 10 miles over hills, and uh, so I picked a lot of the races that I did um, for that kind of race. So I ran the Virginia 10-miler, LB's Distance Classic in Wheeling, West Virginia, Spokane, Spoons Day, um, Cascade Runoff. Those races all featured lots of hills and strength, and that's really what I was good at. Um, occasionally, I would drop down and do an 8K, and I think I had the ability to perform well at that distance, just like I did at the marathon. I could run 213, but that was not what I was really sterling at. What I was very good at was 10-mile, hilly, nasty, tough courses, especially in heat. I was always a good heat runner, which made racing in the summer uh, always really good for me. So big seven-mile, that was good. Um, Peachtree Road Race, that was great for me because of the heat. Uh, I was just born to be a hot-weather road racer. <laughs> and in the United States, that's uh, a great thing to be, for sure. It certainly was when you were racing. Yeah. So did you use or do you now advocate with your coaching any kind of non-running training? Because that's very... That's a really, it's a really good question. And I've always been... I, I guess my philosophy about it is this. If you want to be a runner, first and foremost, you have to run. Um, and given the amount of aerobic work and, and hills and strength that you have to do, that's where your energy, time, and focus has to be placed. If... As a professional runner, you add some light upper body training to that, uh, maybe some drills and that kind of thing at the right time of the year. That makes sense to me. If you have a really limited time, amount of time, and a limited amount of energy as an athlete, and you want to produce good running, then you have to run. And that has to be the primary focus. So I advise my clients if they want to produce good running results, to focus on that. If you want to be a really good all-around human machine, then it makes some sense to me to do some cross-training, to do some weight work and that sort of thing. Uh, so with new clients, I always try to pin them down on what the goal is. If the goal is to produce a really sterling, great, ha a great marathon, say, and, you have, and you're working 60 hours a week, 
then the amount of energy that you put into your running is the most important thing and eliminating a whole lot of extra stuff that just creates fatigue and may not really improve you uh, it seems to me the right way to go. Eliminate the, maybe the hot yoga, eliminate uh, the two-hour gym session, a lot of upper body weights and that kind of thing because that really, if you look at the bang for the buck kind of formula, that's not helping. So it's a, it's a complicated thing and it comes with a person's honesty about what they want to accomplish. And I, you know, while I'm, I'm, I'd hesitate to say that there's no value in weight work or doing bounding or, you know, maybe some cross training, there's value there, but only if you're trying to produce a different kind of result. How's that? Sounds pretty reasonable. Yeah, so, I think. Yeah. So did you have a uh, did you have a favorite race to run, or did you just kind of pick all of them because you like them? Well, like I said, I, I picked races, competitive races, because they fit me. Um, so the LB's Distance Classic in Wheeling, West Virginia, is a, is a great race. I love that race. It was brutal. Um, it could destroy my legs in a way that even a marathon wouldn't destroy them. Um, I loved going there. I loved Bloomsday uh, in Spokane. That's one of my favorite races. I love that race. That course was made for me. Um, Cascade Runoff, also great course for me. I love racing there. So I picked courses that fit me physically, and quite typically the races that I had success at, I really enjoy going to and, and love to do. Conversely to that, I also ran uh, the Revco 10K in um, Cleveland. And, you know, for me that was always tough because it was absolutely flat. There wasn't a hill in it. There was only a couple turns. So that didn't work well for me. And I had success there, but it was contrary to, you know, what, what really did work for me. And I, I had a mixed kind of relationship with Cleveland. Um, they were always really good to me there, and I, I, I liked going and racing there, and I went there multiple years, but it didn't fit for me. And so for me, that was not one of my more favorite places to go because it just didn't didn't work for me the way the Virginia 10-Miler did or Elbies or Bloomsday, Cascade, Peachtree. Um, those races just always fit me, and I just loved going back there. There was a thrill every year, the beginning of May, getting off the plane in Spokane, and, um, you know, the, I can... I can just smell the place, you know, I, I, the smell of the lilacs and the, you know, spring was starting and um, it just, for me, that was always a great thrill and I loved racing there. And that, I guess if I was to pick a favorite race, that one might be it. Um, although there were some really great classic races, really great ones. And now I, I coach mostly marathoners, people who uh, want to produce a good marathon. And I, I've always... I've said over and over again, I'm not sure I fully understand why people are so enamored with the marathon because there are so many great classic road races around the country that people could go do. Um, the Boilermaker <laughs> in Utica, New York, that's a great race. Uh, we have, we're very fortunate in this country to have some really, really great classic road races. Well, I think Don Cardong would, would love to hear you say, would love to to know that you said that, yeah, well, that his event is that, event's probably your I've favorite. Said that to Don, I've said that to Don numerous times, and I've said it to people um, who've asked me that same question. That you know, I think Wednesday is about as good a uh, race as ever been made, and it's 
the whole city comes out for it. Um, the whole area, the whole region supports it. People come from all over the, the U.S., obviously, to run it. They get fields of 50,000-plus. Um, and as an elite runner, you just love running there because it's um, everybody is so tuned into it that weekend. They're so into it. There's so much excitement. And the course is a great competitive course. So at least it was for me. I guess for maybe a track runner, it wouldn't be. But um, I, I just loved running there. Yeah, I'm, I live in that region, so I, I understand what you're talking about. It's one of the few times yeah. you ever see a road race on, on TV and the local news, except for a major marathon. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, you know, I, I say this too, that I, I grew up in the sport in the golden era of road racing. It was really, really magical. And um, from the late 70s all the way through the late 80s, it was the, the golden period of road racing in this country. And um, I ran so many of those great, classic road races where, you know, back in that period, there were great local broadcasts um, that even made national broadcasts. Um, I was fortunate enough to be on Wide World of Sports um, for the Cascade runoff. Uh, TBS used to do national broadcast of Peachtree, so I was on that a couple times. Um, and that's, you know, exciting. It, it really is. And I, you know, we just don't have that coverage as much anymore. But Wednesday still is broadcast locally, and, and there are a lot of local broadcasts for, for local races. But it's just, it, I don't think there's as much attention to it as there was in the early 80s. That's probably true. So here's just a little fun question. Do you have any, like, superstitions that you would do before a race or anything like that? <laughs> um, no, not really. I mean, I, um, I had habits. I was very habitual about how to warm up and uh, about what to eat and that kind of thing. I, I wouldn't say it's superstition because I think when you get locked into something like that, then if you don't, if you can't pull off that whatever it is, uh, you know, it can take you out of your game. So, you know, I always try to be very flexible in my attitude towards uh, warm-ups or towards, um, you know, meals and that kind of thing. I had to be flexible because you, there's so many things that as an athlete you're not in control of. Uh, so, um, but I guess one of my habits was to eat Domino's pizza the night before a race. Yeah, it's, it's probably not the best pre-race meal, but... And I can I I've told this to people when they brought this up. I was known for it actually, is to avoid going out the night before a race, stay away from the you know the um, expo meal and all that stuff. Um, I like to stay in my room and order a Domino's pizza, and everybody knew that. And so people would ask me about that at press conferences, and I'd say, well, yeah, I could order Domino's pizza in every city that I went to to road race, and I you know I get a Hawaiian medium-sized Domino's pizza, and that was my pre-race meal, and I always knew what I was getting. Um, you know, it arrived quickly. I could eat my pizza and, and go to bed early, and that was always a really good sort of ritual for me. The only city that I could not order Domino's pizza in, in the downtown area at the race hotel, was Jacksonville, Florida. Now, that may have changed, but the times that I raced in Jacksonville for the River Run, uh, which was what, an early race for me in the spring, um, those times I would have to figure out something else. And that was a little frustrating to me, but like I said, you, could, you have to be flexible. But that was the only city that I couldn't order a Domino's pizza in. Everywhere else, that was not a problem. So again, all about the consistency and not wanting to change your, your routine. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> I had a rut, and boy, I was going to stay in it as long as I could. Um, you know, and again, I, I, 
I think you, know, you can laugh at that and, and say, yeah, you know, <laughs> it's pretty boring. And, and But at the same time, like I said, I had to be flexible. I couldn't, I couldn't allow those kinds of things to become so ingrained and so obsessive that they would take me out of the situation. But the more consistent I could make my life um, and the more predictable I could make my life, the more effective the training became. Um, and I had, again, you know, even looking at workouts from year to year and season to season, a lot, we did a lot of those same workouts. And as a coach, I know now that, you know, it probably helped Davies because he could say, okay, John, I want you to go do your Risk Canyon workout. And I want you to, you know, concentrate on this or focus on that. And he knew exactly what was expected or what, what to expect out of that workout and what I could get, what the outcome was going to be. And uh, he came to Fort Collins a couple times, and one of my things was always to take him around and show him those locations and, and the workout itself as to what I was doing with it, which helped him, again, figure out what the out appropriate outcome was for each of those workouts. Um, but living in the same location, doing the same kinds of workouts and doing them in the same venues, on the same tracks, et cetera, I think is an extremely valuable thing for uh, a professional. I would probably. I think I would. I think most professionals out there would agree as well. Right, but it's strange to me, Lucas, that more professionals don't focus on getting that kind of lifestyle. Um, they oftentimes will move from place to place. Like I said, I, you know, I saw a lot of people that I was racing in. Um, they would up and just change locations every year or two, or they would change coaches. Uh, like they'd change their shorts. It's just like. Well, that guy's not working for me. I'm going to go somewhere else. Rather than trying to work out the situation or making the appropriate choice from the beginning, um, so you know, at, at, I thought at one point late in my career, well, I'm just really lucky, you know, that it's worked out this way. But in truth, it wasn't luck. Uh, it was my own personal predisposition to living like that. Um, it may not have been a conscious choice. Although I think it was, you know, in some cases, but um, it's just the choice I made because that's the kind of person I was, personality-wise. So fortunate, I guess. I don't know. It seems like that's something that more recreational runners can can do easier than professional runners because they don't generally have a choice to pick up and move to go try some other place or this or this other system. They have a job and they have a family and they have a life in wherever it is they live and. That's what they have to make work. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Um, and but I think you can you can also say that if that that person you know might be it's true with where they live and kind of their day to day, but it's also important from a training perspective um, not to abandon things and move to something else every two or three months. You try to maintain some consistency. Try to produce results by modifying, making small changes um, using the same workouts and find out what works and, and uh, build on that as opposed to like changing things constantly or changing coaches or whatever because you do have a choice in that too. Which is something, and that's in a, in a way that's something Lydiard always advocated in his saying that when you start with me, you're going to be sore and beat up for two years and then maybe you'll, <laughs> and then maybe we'll see what you can do. Yeah, yeah. Arthur said a lot of stuff. Um, like, show me what a person's 200 meter time is, and I can tell you what they can run in the marathon. Um, <laughs> yeah, some of it, some, I, you know, some accurate, some not. But yeah, it does, exactly, but it does. exactly. And I, but I think you know what, what he said about being sore and beat up for two years is probably right too. And again, that 
that shows a long-term perspective of things. You know, and I, I think that that's, that's right. And when, when I start coaching somebody, uh, it's always a real concern of mine. Is this person really going to have the, um, the patience to live through this? And, you know, and oftentimes I get, you know, questions in the first cycle of training. I give people, you know, why am I not doing this? Why can't we do this? I can't, you know, this isn't going to produce the results. You know, or they're worried that they're not going to get to that place. And it puts pressure on me as a coach to, to produce early to try and calm that kind of attitude down. Um, but in the end, if you're doing effective coaching, you're not thinking about um, as much about what the person's going to produce in the next two or three weeks or four weeks or two months. It's really about what they're going to produce a year down the line. But trying to get somebody to get that perspective is a little tough, especially when you're charging them on a monthly basis. They start to think, yeah, this guy's talking about working with me for two years, you know, and this is, so it's, it's hard to engender that kind of perspective, but that's what I try to do. That sounds like a pretty worthy goal. So I want to move yeah. on. You, you're known for, you were known for racing uh, a fair amount, and you also mentioned that you coach mostly marathoners. A lot of marathoners that I've encountered seem to do their training cycle for a marathon or a half marathon and that's kind of about it do you feel like people are do you feel like people should race maybe a little more than they do it's tough to talk in generalities um because everybody's different everybody has a different sort of attitude towards racing um it's hard to get a beginning athlete a beginning runner to see racing for what it is they see it as a big test and are always really upset and nervous about it and even like a, uh, an experienced runner sometimes will put way too much emphasis on what they can do early in the training cycle. Um, so everybody's a little bit different about how much they can tolerate and how much is good for them. Racing was always great for me. I loved to race, um, and mostly because I always had pretty good results. Um, so, I, you know, racing was always a part of even my downtime during periods where I was building up a whole lot of mileage and uh, you know, within basically an aerobic period, I still like to do a race occasionally. Um, I just love that aspect of running. And um, although I don't do any racing now, uh, it was during my career and through almost all of my adult life, um, it's been an important thing to me. So, you know, for me, it was, it was a big deal. Some people, if they're doing a marathon training cycle, they'll manage to do one half marathon or something four or five weeks before the marathon because that's really all they want to do or that's all they can get to. Some areas of the countries don't some areas of the country don't have um, good race schedules. If you live in the middle of Kansas or Nebraska or maybe in the middle of Texas, it's hard to find places that have any kind of racing um, or racing that could be effective. So everybody is a little bit different and again when you're coaching people then you have to take all that into account. Um, not just the kind of races that they can find, but also their ability to tolerate it or uh, enjoy it. Because bottom line for everybody that I coach, it's really about enjoyment, not about a professional outcome. So, Absolutely. So speaking of your coaching, your, your website is called um, Aerobic Management. So what do you do? Anaerobic. Anaer yes, anaerobic. pardon yeah. me. In That's fact, when, when, I, when, I, when I started coaching, everybody was aerobic this and aerobic that. This was like in the early 90s. Um, so I wanted to be a little bit different. So um, Kent and I, I started coaching with Kent Oglesby. 
uh, Kent and I decided anaerobic was really uh, was better. And in fact, um, our motto is that uh, distance running is about aerobic strength and anaerobic management. <laughs> because that's really pretty true. I mean, first there's aerobic strength, but you also have to manage the anaerobic uh, um, stress that you're encountering when you're racing. So, yeah, that's, I think that's a pretty good, I think it's a good motto. Aerobic strength and anaerobic management. Um, yeah, and our, our website is anaerobic.net. <laughs> Which I'm sure generates a few more, uh, at least second looks, than many others. Uh, well, <laughs> we've, we've been, you know, I, I have to say that it's a great way to uh, support myself, and Kim and I and Kent all coach off of that website, and uh, uh, we, it's something we all three like to do. We're fortunate that we don't have to make a huge amount of money out of it. Um, Kim and I made enough when we were running that now we just need enough to keep the lights on, um, and Kent is a retired uh, teacher and um, has other stuff in keeps them busy too, but um, you know we can we can take a limited number of people and work with them intensively, and uh, we work with people all over the country, which is kind of cool too. Like all kinds of different people, from airline pilots and doctors to I have a I work with a waiter in um, Maui uh, in Hawaii. So you know it's just all all sorts of people from all over the country, and that keeps coaching fresh for me. Speaking of that, how did you kind of go from your career as an elite as an elite runner into being a coach? Um, <laughs> uh, I've always coached, actually. Um, you know, design workouts uh, for other people, and uh, right from the very beginning. Um, and I, you know, I guess it's because I just like to tell people what to do. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I've always been really interested in. Um, the physiology behind it, and um, I, I like the the goal-driven part of it and uh, the process of it. So it's always been very interesting to me. And during my professional career, I had the great fortune to work with a physiologist um, that was uh, associated with the Olympic Training Center. Um, his name is David Martin, and um, he lived in Atlanta and worked for Georgia State University. And I would go visit Dave twice a year, and he would do all kinds of testing on me. And he had other athletes that he worked with as well. Uh, Ed Eyestone, um, Steve Spence, the best American distance runners would go to Dave and uh, be tested every year. And Dave would give us all kinds of great information. But what I have said in the past and what I continue to say is that the greatest part of that program wasn't so much finding out what my max VO2 was or how my lungs were doing or the blood tests, which were all very valuable. But the best part of that whole thing was being able to ride around in Dave's VW van for three days um, to these tests and doing runs with him. And because uh, I would just I would sit in a VW van and all we would talk about was coaching and physiology for three days. So it was sort of like twice a year I'd go to Atlanta and I would do a course in, in coaching and physiology with Dave. And uh, it was uh, incredibly um, powerful kind of learning for me. Because uh, I not only got the hands-on physiology part of it with, with the testing, but also talked philosophy with him about coaching and, and, uh, and racing. And you know, Dave is an incredibly intelligent guy and hugely informative and was always really happy about that discussion and was generous about sharing his, his knowledge with me and with, with other people. Um, so, you know, for me, that was a brilliant 
beginning and really understanding the science of, of coaching. Um, so, and then I had all of the really, really great coaches in my, my life that helped me from my high school coach, Lee Corkant, uh, through to John Davies, and uh, my good friend Damian Koch, who coached me for three or four years, too. Um, and they were excellent coaches, all of them, very, very good, different in their own way, but um, certainly a great learning experience for me. And that's how I ended up in coaching. I quit my running career, and I was an agent for a couple of years, and I didn't like a lot of the professional aspects of being a, a, an agent, although I think I was okay at it. I just didn't like it and it didn't fit me. So I went back to what I really loved, and that was you know, being in running and, and, uh, and coaching. That sounds like a dream come true of an apprenticeship under, uh, under Dave Martin. Totally was. And, and again, I, I think you know, he was one of the leading physiologists in the world um, in that area. And uh, about understanding athletes and about physical adaptation and and um, and the testing part of it. And he he wrote a brilliant book, Training Distance Runners, Better Training for Distance Runners, with uh, Seb Coe's father, Peter Coe. And he, I think it remains one of the best um, learning tools for coaches out there. I, it's a it's a fantastic book. Uh, half of it is physiology, which is what Dave wrote, and half of it is the practical application, which is what Peter Coe wrote. And uh, together they wrote a great book, but I, I think the best part of it is Dave's half about the physiology, because he takes um, what is the science of, of running, that's just basic physiology, and puts it into a form that everybody can understand. And uh, it explains how a coach can look at an athlete and understand what's happening inside that body, and, and about how to understand the individuality of it how to test for certain things, um, if something goes wrong, what, what kind of things to look at. It's a brilliant book. It really, really truly is. I like Noakes' book, too, The Lore of Running, which is equally good. Um, but I think Dave's is a little bit more hard on the science and, and maybe the practical side, um, although Noakes wrote a great book, too. So I... I would agree on both on all counts. Those are both great books for for any kind of any aspiring coach and any runner who wants to understand yeah. their own bodies better. I think it's cool that you read both of them. I think that they're, they're they're they are the best. And when people ask me about what kind of books to read, I I have several that I recommend, but it's always Dave that's at the top of that list. He just um, it's it took him a long time to write it. It was published by the Leisure, Leisure Press. I think it still is. Um, and you can still buy copies of it, but um, I, I know he, he didn't make a huge amount of money out of it, <laughs> but he should have made a fortune out of it because it is, it is a brilliant book. So speaking of that, tell us a bit about your book because you published a book at one point too. Well, we didn't actually. No? Um, that, but, no, let's see what, let me explain. Um, there was, a, there was a, a magazine called um, Peak Performance, and it was published by Roadrunner Sports, uh, the people that they have the online um, running store. And um, they asked me through uh, Claudia Pittenberg, who was the editor at the time, asked Kent and me to produce uh, six articles. It, was, it came out every two months, so it would span a year. They wanted six articles on what she said was the art of coaching. And it was pretty open as to how, what we wanted to do. And so... Kent and I sat down and, and we wrote those six articles. And um, what we essentially did was figure out how the process that we went through to coach somebody. 
So we talked about periodization and we talked about the different aspects of the periodization and, and how to apply all that. So essentially what we tried to do is to produce six articles that would tell people how to coach themselves, um, the art of coaching, and, or coach someone else, and how to design a season, uh, a, a, basically a four-month periodized season that would result in um, a single or multiple races at the end of it. So we did that, and she said it was the most popular um, series of articles that they had, and would we be interested in putting it into a book? And we said, okay, that'd be fine. We could do that. So they took those six articles, and we added some extra stuff to it, um, case studies to essentially show case, true case studies from people that we had coached to show how each of those aspects played out and how they worked for those people. And, and so it, it came out as a book, and it was published by Peak Performance through Roadrunner Sports. Actually, Roadrunner Sports published it. Um, that's, we, did not ever, we never owned the rights to it because we essentially did all the writing for them. So they owned the book, and part of our deal was that they would give us a bunch of the copies when they produced the book, which you know, I still have some copies that we saw the people in. Um, but we never owned it, and Peak Performance Magazine was eventually sold to somebody. Now, I don't know whether the rights to the book went with, with the magazine or who owns the rights anymore. I really don't know. It be, would be good to find out because uh, um, I'd like to get the rights. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's a pretty good book, actually. Um, and Peak Performance said when the book came out, it was one of the most popular um, books that uh, Roadrunner Sports had ever sold. So... Well, it, was, it did pretty well, I think. Well, it's one I haven't read, and I would like to add it to my library at some point. So, um, okay. well, uh, last couple questions, because I don't want to keep you too much longer. Um, this is probably one of the more important ones. How did you How did you mentally approach uh, competition, either and both kind of before the start of the race and kind of end mid race when you're when you're maybe wasn't going so well or was going great. Um, Another very broad well, question. It, uh, right, it's a broad question, and, and obviously it, 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 that's a real general thing. I mean, I, each situation was different. Um, I think that I was, I was pretty good at understanding what I could do on a course and what I could get out of myself in almost every instance, um, and then I would lay that against what I thought other people could do. Um, but I would usually come up with some sort of a strategy that would be best for me on the day, um, and that would change from year to year, even on the same courses. But um, I could usually come up with some sort of thing in a general sense. But road racing really is a war of attrition in most cases. It's everybody goes out really hard. You hold on for as long as you can, and then the strategy becomes: What are you going to do in the last two miles? and uh, sometimes in the last 800 meters. Um, and I was, I think, pretty well equipped in most cases to do well in those situations at the end of races. It was, I didn't always win, but I felt like I always was in the race almost all the time. You know, it was always there. It was rare that somebody would just run away from me um, because I did have, you know, pretty big aerobic value, um, and I could I could run hard for a long time. 
So it was rare that somebody would just run away from me. I did get beat at the end of races, but if there was four or five people kicking for the finish line, I was never fifth. You know, I might be second, might be third, might win, but I was rarely ever fifth. I had pretty decent leg speed. So we take all those tools and then I would try to apply them to that race course on that day, and usually I'd come out pretty well. Um, my attitude always was, you know, to win races. I was never really ever concerned about how fast. So I would, my agent, Cree Kelly, would, uh, we would be worried about how much money I could make at races because I was a professional and that was always part of the discussion. Um, and I had, you know, certain attitudes about racing. I needed to make a certain amount of money to be able to pay my mortgage, et cetera. But once I made those choices about going to a race, then I put away all the money part of it. That never even entered my mind, ever. So I was there to win, and that was it. I wasn't thinking about, well, if this guy beats me, I lose $100 or I lose $1,000 or whatever. Um, it was always just about winning races. And uh, I love to race, and I love to win, and um, it was just a wonderful opportunity to, to chase after <laughs> those kind of goals. Um, I could race on every weekend if I wanted to because there were road races everywhere. They had money, and um, that was actually a self-disciplined thing. I had to hold back to the events that I knew I could do well in and, and just chase those weekends that uh, would optimize my ability to win. And how do you think, say, somebody you coach or somebody who's just a, who's just who's not a professional aiming at a payday who and who is aiming at a time, how do you think they should maybe should approach a race? In, again, in a general sense, that's hard to really pin down. Yeah. Well, I think in, in order to understand what you can do physically, you have to do big efforts. And even, like, uh, workouts won't give you the specifics of what you're equipped with. Does that make sense? Absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, I, I'm always frustrated because I'll get requests from people I coach, you know, they'll say, well, what do you think I can do for a pace? And, you know, it's the beginning of the season and they've not done any hard workouts. There have been no time trials. You know, maybe I've only worked with the person for a couple months. I have no clue as to what they can do. Um, that's the purpose of early, early season racing. Um, if they won't race, then we have to do time trials. Uh, there has to be some sort of way of leading up to that event to understand what they can do physically at that upper end. And the only way to do that is to do upper end efforts. So by the time they get to the end of the season, there should be a series of workouts or a series of races that give you the ability to make that prediction as to what that person can do physically pace-wise. Um, if they haven't done that kind of work, then, then it's just a shot in the dark. The more that work they do, the more time trials and more racing they do, the easier it is to predict that kind of, of, uh, of effort, the appropriate effort, the appropriate time. So, I mean, I guess that's my only response or answer to that question is if you really want to understand what you can do at the end of the season in your peak race or um, the goal race, then you need to have done prior racing or time trials or some sort of really hard upper end work to be able to make that prediction. Then it should be almost obvious. I agree. So in closing, what um, John, what final advice do you have for uh, anybody who's trying to either start running, improve their performances, just be a runner? Um, boy, I think that the single biggest thing you can do to improve as a runner is to find a good coach. 
and I, that may sound self-serving, but uh, I think it's absolutely true. I don't know. I in all the years that I was racing uh, against other world-class athletes all over the world from all sorts of different countries, all sorts of different personalities, both male and female, I only came across one person that I thought did a decent job of coaching themselves. And I was in contact literally with hundreds of the best runners in the world through my era. And I only met one that I felt like did a, a reasonable job of coaching themselves. There may have been others, but it was nobody that I was in connection with. Um, and there were people that did coach themselves that did a miserable job of it. But Steve Spence was the only person that I know that got away with that and did a pretty good job of it. Um, so at the world-class level or at the very beginning level, you're always going to benefit by having somebody there that has an outside view of what you're doing, that has a little less emotional contact with it, um, that can see and understand what you're trying to achieve. If you can find that person to help you, you're going to benefit hugely from it. And there are people who are absolutely free who will mentor you in that way. Uh, and there are people who are very expensive out there who are probably very bad at it or are very good. There's an array of, of kind of quality. Um, but finding somebody that can help you see from the outside in and will help you understand what you're doing and provide some guidance, I don't think there's any better way to improve regardless of whether you're a competitive person or whether you're uh, just a beginner who's only interested in the fitness part of it, um, that kind of mentoring is, is really important. So I guess if there's one single thing, that would be it. Along with aerobic strength first. <laughs> yeah, well, that comes, that comes with the coaching knowledge, right? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, John, this has been a really, really cool talk. I think... Everybody out, everybody, all of our subscribers will get a uh, will get a lot of benefit from hearing about your experiences and your uh, and your insights. So I want to thank you for your time and uh, have a great rest of the day. Okay, thanks, Lucas. It was good talking to you. This has been a Runners Connect podcast. If you have a question about what you heard or feedback you'd like to give, please don't hesitate. You can leave a written comment on the episode either on our website or through our iTunes page, or you can leave us a voice message. The number for that is 617-356-7969. We'll answer as many of the questions as we can in one of our monthly Q&A sessions. We look forward to hearing from you, and thanks for listening.